Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What a week. In some ways, though, it feels like we've been here before. Allegations of wrongdoing by President Trump. What those notes reflect is a classic mafia-like shakedown of a foreign leader. Dramatic hearings. This was not swept under the rug. That cannot be an ultimate shield against transparency. Now, we've seen this movie before. The chilling effect that it will have on others in government. It's unhinged and dangerous. Okay, and I will say to my colleagues sitting here, I think you're nuts. Calls for impeachment. 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 Impeachment investigation. But it also feels very different. The Mueller investigation was complicated with multiple players and angles that were hard to follow. The Ukraine story is easy to follow and understand. President Trump asked a foreign leader to investigate a political rival, potentially using U.S. military aid as an incentive. The Mueller report looked backwards at what happened during the 2016 campaign. This Ukrainian situation is happening in real time. But when we really knew that things were different was on Monday night when the Washington Post published an op-ed from seven freshman Democrats, all of them from GOP-leaning districts. Our lives have been defined by national service. We are not career politicians. We're veterans of the military and of the nation's defense and intelligence agencies. Our service is rooted in the defense of our country on the front lines of national security. We have devoted our lives to the service and security of our country. And throughout our careers, we have sworn oaths to defend the Constitution of the United States many times over. Now, we join as a unified group to uphold that oath as we enter uncharted waters and face unprecedented allegations allegations against against President President Trump. Trump. The voices of Representatives Abigail Spanberger, Elaine Luria, and Mikey Sherrill, three of the op-ed co-authors, reading it for us. That op-ed was significant. Until now, they were hesitant to call for impeachment hearings, and that op-ed signaled to Democratic leadership that the tide was indeed turning. After a closed-door meeting with the Democratic caucus on Tuesday afternoon, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made it official. I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. While the Mueller investigation was a two-year process, this week things have been happening at lightning speed. On Wednesday morning, the White House released a memo of the July 25th call between President Donald Trump and the newly elected president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Because when they look at the information, it's a joke. That same day, President Trump held a press conference in New York where he voiced shock at the formal impeachment inquiry. Impeachment for that? When you have a wonderful meeting or you have a wonderful phone conversation? And on Thursday, an unclassified version of the whistleblower's complaint was released not long before Joseph McGuire, the acting director of national intelligence, appeared before the House Intelligence Committee. I am not familiar with any prior instances where a whistleblower complaint touched on such complicated and sensitive issues, including executive privilege. I believe that this matter is unprecedented. So what does it all mean? Where do we go from here? What are the political implications heading into 2020? Those are some of the questions we'll tackle this week on Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We begin with Congressman Colin Allred, who represents Texas's 32nd Congressional District in suburban Dallas, a district he flipped from red to blue in 2018. 
Well, I wanted to make sure that the whistleblower complaint did reach the Congress, and I'm not sure that it would have had we not taken uh, a more aggressive uh, posture. And so I'm glad that we were able to see that. And of course, the administration also released a memo uh, of the call that the president had with the president of Ukraine. Uh, And I found both the memo and the complaint uh, to raise really just some of the most grave issues that I think we maybe have ever seen coming out of a a president interacting with a foreign ally. In my opinion, this appears to be uh, the president trying to use the weight and and power of American foreign policy for his own political gain. Uh, And that is something that we see from authoritarian states around the world, where if you butter up the leader, then you can tilt the foreign policy of that state. That's not something that we've seen in the United States of America. Are you now in support of opening an impeachment proceeding and and having an impeachment vote? I support the inquiry. And I think that we still have a lot of work to do to chase down all the threads that the whistleblower report uh, laid out for us. And I think that the report does give sort of a way to follow uh, the the thread here to get to the truth. And that truth needs to be seen by the Congress, but it also needs to be seen by the American people. And that's why I think this investigation and the hearings are going to be extremely important. Now, because of the nature of some of this, uh, I recognize that there may be some classified information involved, but as much as possible, I'd like to see uh, this process be public, transparent, nonpartisan as much as possible, and let the American people see what happened And then we will all have a decision to make when we get to the bottom of that trail uh, as to whether or not to proceed uh, with an impeachment. Uh, But I certainly think the inquiry uh, is justified at this point. During your campaign in 2018, you were also very guarded about the issue of impeachment, saying, you know, we need to be very careful. We need to see facts. The Mueller report was released in 2019. Unlike many of your colleagues, you did not call for an impeachment inquiry to begin after the release of the Mueller report. So what changed between the release of the Mueller report? What was not in there that you see in the most recent revelations? Well, I think this is uh, an issue that's separate and apart uh, from the Mueller report, although what we saw in that report may color some of what is happening here in terms of a willingness to accept uh, foreign interference in elections uh, and things like that. And I think this has raised an entirely new specter for us, which is, our, is our next election going to be a legitimate one? Uh, and that, I think, is a proximate danger for our democracy. I think it's also uh, different because the rest of the world now has been sent a signal that if you can appeal to uh, this president's political or personal gain, that you may be able to tilt Uh, the foreign policy of the United States in your direction. Uh, And that's something that's extremely dangerous for us. We are the indispensable country in terms of foreign policy. I I am on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I can tell you that the rest of the world does look to us. And when we are not somewhere, there is a vacuum. Uh, But certainly, uh, there will be states around the world that will have seen this and that will be taking this into account and will be wondering whether or not they can tilt our policy uh, in their direction through some kind of aid or something like that. And so the, the message is so dangerous The issue is so pressing that we have to act, and that's what I think we're trying to do. You had said earlier you would like this to be done judiciously in a nonpartisan way, but do you really believe, given what we've seen over the last few years in Congress, that this is going to be anything other than full-out partisan warfare? And are you worried this turns into 
just something of a political circus? Well, of course I'm worried about that because uh, I certainly am not approaching this as a Democrat first, and I hope that all of my colleagues are not approaching this uh, from their own political affiliation first. It would be a disservice, in my opinion, to our democracy and to our country. I believe that the country is watching us very closely now. I think that history is watching us very closely right now. And I think that we will be judged based on how we conducted ourselves uh, in this moment. And I think that to resort to the lowness of our current politics, the inability to tackle large issues, the inability to recognize facts when they're staring you in the face that has inundated our politics across many areas, if that creeps into this and takes over this process, uh, then this will be uh, something that I think will not end up reaching the result that I think is the best for the country. And that's what I hope all of us will keep in mind is what is best for the country. It's certainly what I'm trying uh, to balance here. I, I don't, I was reluctant, as you said, uh, to go down this road. Uh, this is not something that I enjoy. It's not something that I think is good. Uh, this is a dark time for the country. Uh, it's a dangerous time for the country. It's a worrisome time for the country. And I hope that leaders on both sides of the aisle, uh, and I will implore my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, to approach this with the gravity, the seriousness, and the seriousness of purpose that this moment requires of us. We are close to the end of 2019. We're about to go into, obviously, an election year in 2020. Do you have concerns about a timeline that this could drag on well into the time in which we are actually having an election? Absolutely. This cannot be a, a drawn-out process. This is going to have to move uh, faster than things often move uh, here in D.C., and it's going to have to move because, as you said, we do have an election coming up, but also just because uh, the issue is so pressing and needs to be addressed quickly. And we have a lot of other work uh, that needs to be done. You know, I didn't come here, certainly, uh, to be involved in, in issues like this. I have priorities of lowering the cost of health care and you know, investing in our infrastructure, uh, making sure that you can chase your version of the American dream uh, no matter who you are. That's what I would want to be focusing on. That's what I want. I know the American people want us to be focusing on. So for a number of reasons, we can't drag this out. Have you talked with any of your Republican colleagues, even privately, about what they are thinking about right now and what the expectations are for how this is going to look? It seems as if the Texas delegation is pretty well split cleanly among party lines on supporting an inquiry and not. Yeah, I have a lot of friends, uh, especially in the, in the Texas delegation on, on the other side of the aisle, and people who I've worked with closely on a number of issues, on uh, veterans' health care issues, on infrastructure issues, uh, and I respect them. Uh, and we, we have, of course, uh, had some discussions, and I'll, I'll keep uh, those discussions private. Uh, but I will tell you that it's what I'm saying here is no different than what I've said to them, which is that I am hopeful uh, that we can all put aside our partisan badges and get out of our partisan corners for a second and just think about what's in the national security interest of the United States. Think about what's in uh, the interest of the United States democracy going forward and how and what role we're going to play in this. You know, if you approach this purely from your partisan angle, uh, then, as I said, I think you're doing a disservice to the country and I think you're doing a disservice uh, to the oath of office that we took. Many Republicans argue that freshman members like you who sit in districts that were once held by Republicans are putting their reelection prospects in danger. What do you say to them and what do you say to your constituents about that? Well, I hope that people will understand uh, that uh, the deliberative process that I've gone through certainly uh, in reaching this point, and we have to make sure that people know what happened. 
and that they don't and aren't just influenced uh, by the uh, noise that's out there that's going to try and spin and spin and spin this. But the personal political prospects for myself, uh, for my colleagues who are in districts like mine, cannot be the only guiding principle uh, for how we conduct ourselves in a moment like this. And if it is, then I think that we're not living up to what I think the people in our districts uh, put their trust in us to do and the oath that we took. If, if your number one consideration is whether or not you will be reelected, uh, then I don't think that you are serving the people of your area, regardless of this issue or any other issue. I think we have to do what we think is right. We certainly have to be representative, both in job description and in job title uh, of our districts, but we also have to lead. And, and I am intending to uh, do everything I can uh, to show the people of North Texas uh, that I am approaching this with the seriousness that it deserves, that I'm trying to do what's in the interest of our national security interests and of our country, uh, and I will let the voters decide whether or not they agree with my actions. Congressman Colin Allred, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Amy. What's been happening on the Hill this week? We turn to John Bresnahan, who's the Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. John, thanks for being here. Hi, Amy. So we've got a lot to cover. What is remarkable to me is how quickly all of this moved. Um, We got a whistleblower report. We got a readout from phone call with the Ukrainian president. We had the DNI acting director testifying. Is this how quickly this impeachment inquiry is going to move? What are the next steps in this? Well... That's a really good question because right now it's unclear. There's a lot of rumors going around that, you know, what was the timing? Will they get this done by Thanksgiving? Will they get it done by December? I think that's all up in the air and we'll, we'll see. I think, you know, and there is jockeying going on among the Democrats. There's a lot of discussion about should uh, Adam Schiff, who runs chairs the Intel Committee, be, be running this or should be Jerry Nadler, the G- Judiciary Committee, which has traditionally has jurisdiction over these issues. So there's some tension inside the Democratic caucus about what's going on. So all these decisions still have to be worked out. I don't think they, the Democrats have a deadline. I think they want to move expeditiously, but they don't want to look like they're rushing it either. They, you know, there were some rumors early, earlier this week that you know they'd have a vote by the end of October, which seems crazy. You know, that just seems way, way too fast, and it would give President Trump and the Republicans an opening, saying, "Look, they just rushed this through. This was a rush to judgment." So I think the Democrats want to be take their time but not take too much time. I think they'd like to get this out of the House before the end of 2019 and then let the Senate deal with it. So before uh, I talked to you, I spoke with Congressman Allred, who is one of the moderate Democrats who came out this week for opening an inquiry. Is it fair to say that it is these moderates, these freshman Democrats who flipped to the House in 2018 who are driving the train on the path to this impeachment? Absolutely. You know, look, just think about this whistleblower complaint when the first notification of it just came on September 13th. And it was Adam Schiff put out something saying there's a whistleblower complaint and we're we're getting stalled on it. So that's, you know, we're talking about a couple of weeks. And by last weekend, you know, there were some stories in the Washington Post. There was a big Wall Street Journal 
story about, uh, you know, that, that Trump allegedly had referred, referred to uh, Biden and pressuring uh, the uh, Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky, uh, in uh, eight times in a call. That was last weekend, which seems like a year ago. And by last weekend, we were hearing, you know, oh, these frontliners are really debating this. And then, uh, you know, on Sunday night, we started hearing all oh, these, you know, frontliners are going to drop out an op-ed. And then by Monday, they put an op-ed out there. And these are a group of members who the frontliners were referred to as the, the members in swing districts that, that Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Democratic leadership pay a lot of attention to. And they didn't sign on to, most of them did not sign on to impeaching Trump over the Mueller report. But this, this what, what they see is a blatant abuse of presidential power by Trump has really convinced them to move forward on this. And right now, out of a 235-member Democratic caucus, you only have like probably about a dozen members who are not, uh, you know, out on board saying we need an impeachment inquiry or even further saying I'm ready to vote right now to impeach Trump. So let's talk about the Republicans for a minute. They do seem pretty unified in their messaging, supporting the president, saying that these are not impeachable offenses. Is the expectation that they remain unified or are there some cracks that are starting to emerge? There's a few minor cracks. I think they've had problems with their own message. I mean, at first, uh, there was this embarrassing incident where the White House sent up some talking points uh, to the Hill and they got, you know, I actually sent it to the media by, and the Democrats by accident. Um, and the first line was, look, you know, when the, this was when the transcript of the call, the Trump Zelensky call came out and, and, you know, there was no quid pro quo there. And that seems really kind of a pathetic line and that's kind of moved back. But, you know, I think right now what they're saying is, you know, the, the you know the Democrats are rushing here. They're so you know they were they're going they were going. There's a bloodlust. They keep saying bloodlust to get Trump, and it was if they couldn't get him over Mueller, so they're going to get him over this. But you're seeing a couple little cracks. You're seeing, you know, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois said he was concerned about what he'd heard. Mike Turner of Ohio said he was concerned about what he heard. This is in the Trump call. So there's a couple, you know, Mitt Romney, of course, uh, the Senator Mitt Romney and former uh, Republican presidential candidate said it was very troubling. So, I mean, there's some cracks, but it's around the edges. And right now, Trump has held on to them. And my expectation is that he will probably continue to do so. In fact, if the Democrats move quickly, that actually helps Trump in that sense hold on to Republicans because it doesn't give them time. The, the longer this goes on, I think it would be harder for the president to control the message inside his own party. And I think if, it's, if Democrats move quickly, you know, that helps them on their side. But I also think it, conversely, it helps Republicans on their own side stay in line with Trump. So, John, we know this is called an impeachment inquiry. But there, as you pointed out, there are more than 218 Democrats, almost all Democrats, who have signed on to this. Is there any way that this doesn't ultimately turn into an impeachment vote? Is the train too far down the tracks to believe that it can stop short of voting to impeach the president? I, you know, I think that once you get into an inquiry, the pressure builds to get the vote. I mean, the base, the Democratic base has wanted to impeach Trump since, you know, the day he was sworn into office. I remember they were, you know, I remember I had Democrats who couldn't believe Republicans in the House didn't impeach Trump a couple of years ago, and I'm, which I thought was crazy, but they didn't, they thought it would actually happen. I think once you get into inquiry, 
I think it gets, you know, it, it gets its own logic. It, it, it moves more quickly toward a vote. But I'm not guaranteeing it because, you know, Speaker Nancy Pelosi will do what she thinks she has to do. And she's not going to make any move unless she has, you know, 218 Democrats not locked down before she even heads to the floor. John Bresnahan is the Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. John, thanks so much for coming in and joining me. Thanks, Amy. For many, impeachment is a loaded term. To many Republicans, the current impeachment proceedings are politically motivated. But to the well over 200 Democrats in the House that have thrown their support behind an impeachment inquiry, they see it as their constitutional duty. How this plays out will depend on a few things. Some of it will be a matter of law, but the rest is less clear cut. Here to discuss this with me is Margaret Taylor, senior editor and counselor at Lawfare. I started out by asking her about how the process of impeachment is different from a case that would be held in a traditional courtroom. Impeachment is, at its heart, uh, fundamentally a political process rather than, strictly speaking, a legal process. And what that means is the impeachment process is focused um, not only on potential crimes that uh, a public official might have committed, but um, other types of abuses of the public trust. You know, just go back in history a little bit. Um, in 1788, as supporters of the Constitution were urging states to ratify the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton described impeachable crimes in one of the Federalist Papers as, quote, those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. So that's really the heart and soul, I think, of, you know, what the impeachment process is about and the types of offenses that a public official can be removed for. Well, we've been asking listeners for their questions about this whole process, and here's one we got a lot, and I want to put it to you. How quickly can the impeachment process be concluded? I'm afraid that the impeachment process will hijack the election if it's not done quickly. So that is really a question for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She's going to need to make a political kind of calculation about how fast she wants this to move. She has said publicly that the the facts will drive the pace of the investigation. But the ra- reality here is that it seems like a number of the House Democrats, in particular these freshman Democrats who earned their seats in red states, um, would like to move quickly to impeachment based on this latest set of revelations. So it's possible to move uh, quite quickly. On the other hand, it's also possible to have a long investigation uh, and really take the time to understand all the facts and all the potential conduct that might be at issue. There was a lot of focus on the acting DNI director's testimony, and a lot of it was about legal obligations for national security team and what to do with a whistleblower complaint. Can you help us understand fundamentally what went on in that hearing and what the 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 crux of the discontent was from Democrats about this? Adam Schiff and other Democrats really had a, a bone to pick with acting DNI McGuire because of his decision not to transmit the whistleblower complaint consistent with the relevant statute that Congress views as governing his activities. What McGuire did was instead of transmitting it within seven days, which is what the statute on its face requires, he consulted with the White House 
lawyers and with Department of Justice lawyers. That's not contemplated as part of the statute. And so House Democrats, I think, were concerned that what was going on there was that McGuire was essentially alerting the White House and the Department of Justice about the whistleblower complaint. And Mm -hmm. the problem with that is that the president uh, and potentially also Attorney General Bill Barr are subjects of the complaint. And so what McGuire's failure to transmit the whistleblower complaint means is that he didn't follow the, the statute as written. That means that there's a possibility Congress might never have received any of this information. So will they focus on the alleged cover-up or on the potential misdeeds outlined in that call between President Trump and the president of Ukraine? The relevant inquiry isn't whether there was a violation of the law. It's whether there was this violation of the public trust. I think that what the House will focus on is uh, the the activities of the president. Um, With respect to this Ukraine situation, it's not clear whether the president was involved in some sort of a cover-up. It seems Mm -hmm. there were some White House officials who were you know, putting the the call transcript onto a different computer system. Um, There did seem to be a lot of machinations going on, but it's not clear what the president's role was in all of this. The president's role is very clear, though, in the transcript of the call memo or the call memo that was released uh, of his conversation with uh, the Ukrainian president. And so for the purpose of thinking about impeachment of the president, It's really the president's conduct that is at issue here. And there's plenty to work with in that call memo that was released by the White House. And what did the whistleblower complaint add to what we knew about the call and what we had seen about the call from those uh, transcripts that had been released from the White House? I think the whistleblower complaint added some context, additional context for for the call that President Trump had with President Zelensky, it outlined a number of things that had occurred before. So, for example, uh, Rudy Giuliani traveling to Ukraine, talking to Ukrainian officials, um, seeming to encourage them to uh, try to obtain dirt uh, on the Bidens in various forms. So it provided important context for what Rudy Giuliani had been doing. I think it also... It also adds uh, some some facts that we didn't know before, in particular, what were the actions of White House officials and other officials after the call happened? What did they do with the verbatim transcript of the call? Um, why did they do those things? Um, and it also you know leads us to the questions of you know how the whistleblower complaint was handled. So um, you know a decision was made to not, pursue any sort of criminal charges or anything associated with the whistleblower complaint within the executive branch. And so there's a question of, you know, how is that decision arrived at? How is it that Attorney General uh, Barr, who, again, is mentioned in all of these materials, how is it that, you know, he was involved in uh, making decisions about whether to to not uh, prosecute? I want to actually rewind to the beginning of this week when Speaker Pelosi um, made comments, uh, public comments that she was opening a formal impeachment inquiry. And I'm wondering if she actually needed to do that. It seems to me that we've already had a number of committees that were investigating different um, issues by the president. And so 
I guess a quicker way of saying this is, is there such thing as a formal impeachment inquiry? Does this mean anything legally, technically? Or did she just simply say this as a way of alerting her party and the public to the fact that they are moving into a maybe a, a different and faster pace of investigation? Really, the significance, in my view, of Nancy Pelosi's uh, statement was that she is signaling strongly that she's throwing her weight behind the impeachment inquiry and also probably is leaning towards impeachment. Um, And that's huge. That's not something that had been the case before. She had been um, sort of reluctant on this front. Her announcement was more of political signaling, saying, yes, we're going to go forward and we're going to do this. Margaret Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Margaret Taylor is Senior Editor and Counsel at Lawfare. For so many Black people, The Wiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour... We'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. All right, we've walked through the details of what transpired over the course of the week. We've talked about the impeachment process and the law. Now let's talk about the politics. What are the political implications for Democrats and Republicans? For that, I'm joined by Doug High. Doug has held communications positions in the House, Senate, and the RNC. He's also served in the George W. Bush administration and is a contributor for CNN. Hi, Doug. Good to be with you. And Joel Payne. Joel is a Democratic strategist. He worked as an aide to former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid and was a senior advisor for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Joel, thanks for being here. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. So uh, it has been a crazy, wild week. And the first thing I want to do is to get each of you to just tell us what your main takeaways were from this week. Doug, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, you know, there are so many that I have that it's very (laughs) difficult to really come up with one or two. Um, You know, the thing I've been telling people the most is is anybody who can tell you exactly what's going to happen is either lying or blindly partisan or both. I think this is going to be a long process and that, you know, trying to figure out right now exactly what's going to happen is going to be a fool's errand. Um, This is a very complicated process. You've got complications on the Democratic side. You know, we didn't think we'd be here just a week ago. Um, and certainly a lot of complications on the Republican side as well. Joel, what about you? What do you think this this means um, politically as we go forward? Well, I think politically, look, Democrats um, had to react to the information on the ground. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi was pretty loath to do this. Um, it was pretty clear that she was not... Um, you know, of the belief that impeachment was the smartest thing politically. I'd actually think if you if you cornered Nancy Pelosi, she'd probably still tell you it's not the smartest thing politically. But the president's actions here have boxed her in and have boxed her caucus in. And I think she risked 
losing the faith of the caucus, but also the heart and soul of the party um, if she didn't move here. So I think, um, you know, this was something that the speaker was somewhat forced to do. But I think that said, I think um, Democrats have a better chance for success with, let's just say, this round of impeachment engagement versus the last round of impeachment engagement. And I'd say for one reason, it's because speed. Everything has happened so quickly. The the hearing with DNI McGuire, um, the release of the whistleblower complaint, um, the the release of the memo from the White House. These things that over the Mueller report probably would have taken what weeks or months. These things all happened really within ninety six hours. Um, that really served Democrats' benefit in terms of laying out the public case. Doug, I want to raise that point that Joel just made about it. It may not be the smartest thing to do politically. I talked to a Republican consultant the other day who said, man, Democrats were actually headed in a really good direction. We were really worried about 2020. And they just basically gave us a gift. They fumbled the ball and allowed Republicans an opportunity to get back on the offensive. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think there's truth in that. But again, it, I think it's hard to really say conclusively um, that this is this was the right move politically or the wrong move politically this closely into you know this process. As Joel said, this has been a very fast week. Um, we didn't think we'd be here a week ago or, or two weeks ago. We still need to see where some of this is going to play out. I do think there are political opportunities for Republicans here. This does fit into Trump's kind of worldview. I disagree with this worldview, but uh, the worldview that the government is out to get him and that they've always been out to get him. Um, having worked in the House of Representatives during the last um, impeachment um, process with, with Bill Clinton, there was certainly a mindset also of, of Republicans of we're going to get Clinton. And it became personal in that level. I think we've certainly seen some of that from Democrats as well. And, and that's where there are opportunities there. But to say that, you know, impeachment is great news for this president is not something that I really formally endorse. Well, that's the question, Joel, is that this turns into a partisan circus. It puts the focus on Washington and dysfunction instead of Democrats talking about the areas in which they want the campaign to focus on health care the economy, things like that. Yeah, I think those are all fair points. And, and I I'd associate myself with, with some of what Doug is saying. I think two other things I'd call out is, is this. One, the people who are going to be the leads for Democrats here, and I actually think Nancy Pelosi has to feel a lot better given the fact that really the efforts are going to be centralized around the Intelligence Committee. I think Chairman Schiff has been a much better spokesperson um, in the eyes of many Democrats than some of the other folks um, who have been involved in, let's just say, some of the president's misdeeds. Um, I think that Schiff has been very clear about his message. Um, He's got a smaller committee, which in itself, when you talk about a public uh, hearing, Doug and I both know that when you've got less people on the committee, it's less speechifying that you have to deal with uh, on the floor. Um, and I and I get the sense that Pelosi is a little bit more comfortable. You know, some of the chatter I hear on the Hill is that maybe she wasn't quite as comfortable with, say, Chairman Nadler's committee or some of the other committees, but she's comfortable with the Intelligence Committee. And I think that's important when you talk about how you sell a case publicly. Um, but I think also, you know, we cannot underestimate the fact that Pelosi also has the majority makers, the frontline members, the people like Alyssa Slotkin, uh, Representative Crow, you know, some of those moderate Democrats who won those swing districts that really made the majority for Democrats in 2018, that op-ed that she she got 
from them. I think that really was obviously, you know, the, the final nail in the coffin in terms of moving us towards impeachment. So mm-hmm. a lot of these factors kind of play into Democrats feeling a lot more comfortable. I think she feels like she has a unified caucus and it's easier for her to sell a message when she has that unified caucus. Doug, very quickly, um, what do you think the risks are for Republicans for sticking with the president and not breaking ranks? Well, the difference is between primary politics and general politics. In Mm -hmm. the primary right now, there's no risk at all. In the general, look at Tom Tillis in North Carolina. He's polling 20 points below the president. He's the senator up for re-election this year. Yes. Next year. He's polling Mm -hmm. 20 20 points below the president, who's not at a great approval rating, about 42% for Trump in North Carolina. Tillis is at 27, I think, in the last, or 25 in the last poll. That's a problem for him in a general. In a primary, he should be fine. He should be fine by sticking with the president. Yes, yeah. So that's the that's the and that's what he's okay. doing. Joel, I'm going to come back to you and let's talk about what this could mean for the 2020 Democratic nomination. Obviously, the name Joe Biden is mentioned a lot in this Ukraine phone call and the whistleblower complaint. What does it mean for him and um, his standing in this primary? It's interesting. This is a really evolving storyline. So, you know, Biden, actually, I think conventional wisdom might say him being elevated by the president might help him short term. Mm -hmm. But long term, obviously, the damage to his reputation, the damage to his family's reputation and the narrative that's being laid out is harmful. I think that's, you know, entering the the last, let's say again, the the last uh, five to seven days. That's how I felt. Now, as we look at the fact that Elizabeth Warren is actually gaining momentum, she really won the summer. I think this has really been a tough um, two week period for Biden. You've seen Warren really start to um, build that winning coalition that Democrats really feel like she would need in order to win the nomination. And you've got Biden, who is on the wrong end of this type of public news. I think it really favors someone like Elizabeth Warren. And I think it really um, hurts Joe Biden, not because there's any. And, and again, I think it's important that we lay this out, not because there's any truth to some of the president's um, you know, allegations here. Some some of them are wildly off base. But the public stain that's being laid into Joe Biden, I think, will be really, really difficult for him to evade long term. And Joel, even among Democratic primary voters, you're saying that could be the same. It's not just about his standing with the general electorate, because it seems to me you're you're right that for a lot of voters, they may be saying, boy, I don't know, this smells a lot like what we went through in 2016 with Hillary Clinton and the emails and her backstory. Is I that think what that's you're exactly saying? right, Amy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the same way that the electability case worked for Joe Biden over the first, let's say, five to six months of this primary process, I think it's starting to work against him, combined with his gaffes that you and I have talked about in the past. And now a story like this. Yes, voters may not personally think this is true of Joe Biden, but can certainly see a scenario where Donald Trump hangs this around Joe Biden's neck for the next year. Doug, um, certainly that's the, the Biden argument is, well... The president is doing this because he sees me as his biggest foe and that Republicans are pushing this in order to make sure that I'm not the front runner, that I don't become the nominee. Is that effective? Is it better for uh, for the president, again, taking aside all the other legal implications of this, to not have Joe Biden as his foe in November? Well, I think it depends really on, you know, what the attitude of the electorate ultimately is as far as, you know, do do they want to go back to normal or are they looking, you know, what we might call normal or are they looking for change? And that's the difference between Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. If, If I'm the Biden camp, though, I have to look at this as an opportunity. 
um, to try and seize some momentum away from wrest some momentum away from Warren. And in doing so, you know, I think it's right to talk about you know Hillary Clinton and the reminder that this may bring. It also tells the Biden camp don't handle this the way that Hillary Clinton handled the server. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of forget that this was mismanaged for weeks and months even by her team, you know, with the terrible press conference and the did I wipe the server off with a cloth joke and and so forth. If Biden comes out of the gates firm and shows some real fight and pushback, that's something that could really energize uh, Democratic voters. Amy, can I make one additional point? Sure. You know, uh, Biden, um, it's, it's really interesting because I think as we've seen this evolve here, Trump can run essentially the same campaign against Joe Biden that he ran against Hillary Clinton. And I think a lot of Democrats are starting to feel that way. He can essentially take the 2016 playbook, dust it off, rinse, repeat, do everything he did. He can run against the insider. He can run against the establishment. He can talk about Joe Biden and influence peddling. He can talk about Hunter Biden. He can create a whole new but her emails campaign. Elizabeth Warren or some of the other Democrats, I think that's a more complicated campaign for the president to run. That doesn't mean he can't be effective against them. It's just different. And we know the president is all about comfort zone and is all about going back to what he knows. So it's a reflexive campaign that he can run against Joe Biden. That's not so much against Elizabeth Warren. Though, Doug, there are many folks, Republicans and Democrats, though, who believe that Warren will have a more difficult time in November not because of who she is, but her policy positions. She's too far to the left. And Donald Trump will be effective in undercutting her based on that. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, As you know, I'm from North Carolina, a state that Barack Obama won narrowly in 2008, Mitt Romney won narrowly in 2012. Uh, Trump won by, I think, about three, three and a half points mm-hmm. um, last time. I think Joe Biden could win North Carolina, especially if he can if he can successfully put together um, the, the the Obama coalition that caught Republicans by surprise in, in 2008. I don't see a path for Elizabeth Warren to do that. Um, and certainly, you know, Pennsylvania is a state that Joe Biden uh, should be able to win with with some ease, you know, having been born in Scranton and talking about um, Scranton and, and connecting with those kinds of voters um, in a way that Warren may not be able to. And I would say one other thing uh, quickly about you know, the, the Trump attacks on Biden and Hunter Biden. I, I do see how that plays in, in the 2016 Hillary playbook, that it's a, a, a retread of that. The one thing that Trump will need to be careful of is by going after Hunter Biden, he's saying that going after the children of politicians is fair game. And if you are the father of Don Jr., Eric, and um, Ivanka, I don't know that that's necessarily the wisest move. Joel, what's the risk for Democrats in these next few weeks here and as they're putting this inquiry together? What are you, as a strategist, as a political person, the most worried about? I'm worried about it getting bogged down in process. You know, that Mm -hmm. hearing earlier this week, which, by the way, in fairness to them, it was an intelligence process hearing. But it really, I think, scared some Democrats that that hearing did not feel quite as focused on the merits of the whistleblower complaint and more about process and kind of gotcha. I think Democrats can't get bogged down in process like that. So I think that's important. I think speed and clarity are important. This is an easy case to make to the public. Democrats have to maintain that high ground in order to continue to have success. Um, and, and, And again, you know, speed. This probably is something that we need to know what the direction of the Democratic caucus is on by Halloween. You know, inside the next month, Mm. Democrats need to determine what they want to do. And Doug, what do you think, both for Democrats and Republicans, the real risks are here in these next few weeks? 
Yeah, I think for either side, it, it's showing that you take this seriously and that you're, you know, you're opening, open to learning these facts. You know, one of the things that's disappointed, I think a lot of folks is when we see kind of political stunts that have happened, I'm thinking most specifically of, of Steve Cohen with his um, fried chicken um, and everything that he tries to do. It takes away from the gravity of this. Republicans also need to show not just that they support the president, but that they're that they're taking this seriously and looking at facts first. Doug, hey, Joel Payne, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And here's a final thought from me. We are far too early into this impeachment process to have any real idea of where it's landing with voters. I wouldn't put a lot of faith in any polling on impeachment that comes out now. I understand the appetite to have data to prove or disprove one's theory that this week has changed everything. But what polls ask voters about today could be very different from what we are talking about in a week or two. It's also unsatisfying to look to history as a guide. The mythology surrounding the 1998 impeachment of Bill Clinton still drives a lot of the conventional wisdom today. The thinking goes like this. Republicans pushed an unpopular impeachment and paid for it at the polls. But it's not 1998 anymore. We're a much polarized country than we were back then. Partisans are less willing to give the opposite party credit for things going well and more willing to support their own party when things turn sour. We also know that this president is more unpopular than President Clinton was at this point during his impeachment. And opinions on President Trump are pretty well set in stone. At his lowest point, the president's approval rating has never dipped below 35 percent. But even on his best days, his approval ratings haven't broke 46 percent. From fights about inauguration size to stories of a soaring stock market to the outrage over Charlottesville and the release of the Mueller report, Trump's approval ratings have remained incredibly stable. So why should we think that an impeachment inquiry and possible impeachment will upset this balance? We're a deeply divided, deeply polarized country, and as such, we shouldn't expect views of impeachment to be any different. Opinions won't swing wildly from day to day or week to week. We also shouldn't expect to see Americans overwhelmingly support or overwhelmingly oppose impeachment. Like everything else in this era, the final verdict on impeachment is likely to be decided on the margins by voters who are holding conflicting views on the president and the process of impeachment, by those who may dislike Trump but are also frustrated by the paralysis in Washington, or those who may like the agenda of the president but are troubled by his behavior. And that's my take. The team that puts this show together every week is Jay Cowett, Vince Fairchild, Amber Hall, Polly Arungu, Patricia Jacob. Our executive producer is Deirdre Debke. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. Also, if you missed anything or want to listen back again, check out our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts and leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call us anytime, 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.